Hi, it's Matt. Just before we start the show, I want to tell you about a great live event I've got coming up on the 27th of March. To celebrate 600 episodes of Recruiting Future, I'm going to be hosting a live Ask Me Anything webinar. This is your chance to pick my brain on anything you like, including market trends and predictions, the impact of AI on recruiting, skills-based hiring, the changing role of recruiters, podcasting tips, or even my favourite Scottish tourist destinations and whiskies. Literally, ask me anything. I'll also be joined by some surprise special guests who'll be adding their perspectives to the conversation. You can sign up now by going to mattalder.me slash AMA. That's mattalder.me slash AMA. And I really look forward to seeing you there. That web address one last time. mattalder.me slash AMA. Hi, this is Matt. I'm on holiday at the moment, but I want to make sure that you've got plenty of recruiting future content to listen to until I'm back. So for the next four weeks, I'm going to supplement the new interviews that are being published in July by republishing some of my favourite episodes with conversations you may have missed the first time around. One of the continuing themes on the show has been how many employers are starting to think differently about talent and potential. It's always good to get a perspective from outside of the industry. This week's replay is my conversation with Medi Cordy, the Dutch national track cycling team coach on development, performance and culture. Support for this podcast is provided by Paradox, the conversational AI company helping global talent acquisition teams at Unilever, McDonald's and CVS Health get recruiting work done faster. Let's face it, talent acquisition is full of boring administrative tasks that drag the hiring process down and create frustrating experiences for everyone. Paradox's AI assistant, Olivia, is shaking up that paradigm, automating things like applicant screening, interview scheduling and candidate Q&A so recruiters can spend more time with people, not software. Curious how Olivia can work for your team? Then visit paradox.ai to learn more. There's been more of scientific discovery more of technical advancement and material progress in your lifetime and mine than in all the ages of history. Hi there, this is Matt Alder. Welcome to episode 442 of the Recruiting Future podcast. I'm a firm believer in looking outside the talent acquisition universe to see what lessons we can learn from other disciplines. Elite sport is always an interesting parallel, as selecting and developing talent is a critical aspect of building a winning team. My guest this week is Mehdi Cordy, the coach of the Dutch national track cycling team. The team have had a massive amount of success in recent years, including winning three golds, a silver and a bronze at the last Olympics, despite having considerably fewer resources and less funding than many of their competitor nations. It was fantastic to hear firsthand from Medi how they achieved this, and there are some very valuable lessons here for TA leaders everywhere. 
I'm Eddie, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matt. Happy to be here. An absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Could you just introduce yourself and tell everyone what you do? Well, my name is Mehdi Cordy. Uh, I am currently the coach of the Dutch track cycling team. What would be interesting, I think, for, for people is to to hear a bit about your, your background and, and how you got to be the coach of the Dutch track cycling team. It's, it's quite a convoluted route, I guess. Uh, if I may, I'll, I'll start at the beginning, or, or 18 or, or whatnot. I, I went to university uh, in Manchester, swore I'd never go back, and I did a biomedical science degree. Um, thought I'd become an accountant. I, it's because of my Iranian ethnicity. I just thought that um, I was stereotyped. You know, my DNA will be good with numbers. Turns out I wasn't, and I failed at the first attempt of any exam. And then um, for some reason, I tried to pursue that for longer than I should have done, and then um, I was actually a rower, so I went into full-time rowing and just tried to see what I wanted to do there and then decided I wanted to go and do a master's in London. And I did it in uh, aerospace physiology at King's College London. Um, from there, I got some <laughs> positions, which I want me to talk about later, I can, in Brazil and Peru, and then worked in the European Astronaut Centre in Cologne, Germany. But I really sort of craved performance um, and sort of science in performance. And I applied and was lucky enough to get a PhD at the English Institute of Sport in Manchester, where I saw I'd never go back, at British Cycling, um, looking at the training sciences of track sprint cycling. So that's your Chris Hoy and your Jason Kenny's for the more sort of popular examples, I guess. And then from there, I went to be, after my PhD, I became the sports scientist for the Paris Sprint Group then became the coach of the power sprint and then uh, got offered a job at the Dutch track sprint team where we went to the Olympics, won three gold, a silver and a bronze, uh, adding to our, I think it's nine world titles we've got and 11 European. Wow. And here I am. <laughs> That's some backstory. It's convoluted, isn't it? It's not It's not like the, the uh, linear progression. Tell us a little bit about you know what your day-to-day job in entails just for, for for people who are trying to sort of imagine what that might what that might be like well th- there is no sort of day-to-day sort of typical day i'd say so uh, my, my, my role is i would say split for, for two reasons number one we're a small team so that means if the shoe fits you have to wear it and um because i have a phd and and, and quote-unquote a scientific background i do have to look after like the science tech and oversee the project work of that because, well, no one else would. And you have to keep all the sponsorships and partnerships we've developed sort of in tune with and aligned with what we want and what is the best rather than what they want. Or is a compromise, should I say. But then on actually the more um, pertinent job I have is, is coaching the riders. At the moment, I think I've got like 11 or 12 and managing the staff so we don't have full-time staff mostly we've got i think three or four full-time staff members but the rest are part-time so it's really just trying to make sure that um everything is i use this word a lot already (laughs) aligned in basically optimizing performance for the athletes when we need it most day-to-day that that could be anything from talking to a rider who's having a meltdown or or the opposite, having a great day and just sort of managing their expectations. Um, same with staff, like trying to uh, hold them to account, uh, you know, what their tasks are or 
you know, to encourage them to go, you know, trusting them and what they're doing. And also, um, again, the same really with the partners and, and sponsorships we have is, again, just seeing, um, making sure that we're all on the same page and, and just moving it forward rather than stagnating it. I want to talk a little bit more maybe about sort of technology and resources in a second, but I just wanted to talk a little bit to you about coaching and, and, and talent. What makes a good coach? That's a really good question. I mean, I've actually been in this game now for 10 years and I've struggled to actually define what a coach is. So if someone says, what is a coach? It's really taken me up to about nine years to really define what it is for myself. So I've come to the definition of this is my kind of final definition, which I guess I can fine tune is someone who is a vehicle or you know, someone to get the best out of someone else. That's a coach. So what makes a good coach? So how do you get the best out of someone or make them reach their full potential? And there really isn't um, uh, uh, sort of a, a silver bullet or one methodology that, you know, it's a one size fits all. It's really just being open to try new things to get the best out of whoever you're trying to get the best out of. And one thing I've definitely learned is everyone reacts differently and to the situation they're in. And let me give you an example. So for example, a rider, you know, I can't sack them if they're being bad or <laughs> or whatever they're being. You have to work with them, particularly on the na- international level in cycling. You know, they're, they're not very many of them. So you, you have to work with them. And that usually requires trying to understand a lot of empathy, communication, being clear, and being open and honest and transparent. Um, with staff, obviously, you do have the ability to change and shuffle around but again the same principles really apply but in different sort of quantities for for every person i think really you have to understand what makes people tick and really focus on that and what gets the worst out of people and and, and try and stay away from that but on an individual basis and i think also you have to treat people individually and I use this word kind of liberally, judge them the same, if you want to put it that way. And what I mean by that is you can get to the, you can get the best out of them in different ways, but ultimately when it comes to performance, that's the only thing that matters. In terms of sort of talent and the, the talented people that you that you work with, first of all, how, how do you spot of elite sporting talent? Is it something that you can see in people early? Is it something that, that that's developed? What are the, what are the elements that, that make that up? I only speak for a, a sporting sort of perspective here, but a lot of people assume talent is physical. And I think it really comes in almost in um, a non-visible, all, all the best talent or the most sustainable performers come in things that are, that are not sort of uh, quick to see on the eye. So, for example, we use the words mental resilience or behaviours. They're the things that really stick out. So the only thing I've really come to see is those who are the best performers at junior level or under 23 level are just simply good performers at junior level under 23 level and that's where it stops it's really the ones actually have not had that much success when they're younger are the ones who can craft out better careers simply because they can um apply themselves better they 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 someone use expression <laughs> but I'm going to use it anyway. They want it more. So what that means is that they, they prepare more, they take it more seriously. They, you know, they'll come back again. They're used to adversity and want to try new things, open to ideas. So it's more behaviors and mentality. 
And an example of that is recently in a race, one rider we had, she she performed abysmally, but she fought to the end. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really sort of summarizing this. Is that there was a lot more intricacies to that. And that to me, and, and she took the, and she put, stuck her hand up and was like, yeah, okay, that race I was not ready for, even though I thought I was ready. And she really sort of took responsibility for it, sort of um, actioned the way that she was going to make it better. And then in the race itself, she didn't just give up where she could have done because you know she was getting battered. But she just hung in there and fought and fought and fought till the end, which, you know, that is something I believe you can work with. And that's where the talent lies rather than just a, a physical beast. Um, having said that, there is a baseline of physical talent you do need. Sort of like a prerequisite. So not any old person can come. But really, I just, for me, what, what I define as sort of talent or how do I spot for it is this behaviors, particularly in adversity and behaviors of what they're doing in the time of adversity and how they react to it. Like, do they take responsibility? Do they blame someone? Do they look for excuse? That's really, really interesting, actually. I think that translates so well into lots of other industries and areas as well. Just to, to dig a little bit deeper into in, into resilience, how do you sort of help people to build that resilience even further? Resilience is allowing them and allowing you to show vulnerability. If they trust you enough to show their vulnerability and vice versa, that builds an element of trust, which means that they're willing to show how weak they're feeling which can then, I don't know if I'm verb, I don't know, because actually, this is the first time I've actually thought about it, really trying to verbalize it. But, but, but basically, you know, if you show, I think showing vulnerability is a, uh, a way of building resilience because you're sticking your hand up and saying, look, I don't think I'm good enough or I need help. And therefore you can work on it rather than trying to be the proud person saying, you know, I'm tough, I'm tough, you know, I'm, I'm a hard, you know, I'm, I'm mentally really strong and then just cracking at the end of it. So, I really actually believe that showing your vulnerability you know, in a safe environment to the right people really helps build uh, resilience, definitely in the short term. Long term, I'm, I'm, I think that resilience really comes about from the passion. And what I mean by that is if you're not very good at something, for example, bike racing, but you love it and you're committed to it and you don't care if you lose as long as you keep racing and you want to get better, that's kind of resilience built long-term. So I think there's kind of two categories to it, but really I think, you know, in the elite end or the, or, or the, or the top end or the pointy end of performance, I honestly believe that showing vulnerability to the right people is a way of building um, sort of mental toughness or resilience. Just to sort of ask a, a, a question about, sort of science and technology how important are science and technology to what you do where's the kind of the balance between the, the science and the humans if you like or how do they how do they all work together well firstly let's make no bones about this it's the human that powers the bike the, you know, without them and without the um you know their race craft their application them being able to actually ride a bike uh, you know 80 kilometers an hour that's the thing that wins you the race um, however, the technology is way more important than what people think. So, for example, the skin suits, and a lot of people don't know this, is one of the most important pieces of technology on the rider. Reason being that you know, almost at 80 kilometers an hour, almost all the resistive forces 
is coming from aerodynamic drag rather than, say, body mass, what people think it is, which means that you want to get the drag as low as possible. And the material that you wear on the skin suit, that where it's rough, where it's smooth, really, really affects that by up to about 10%. So you know, it's really important that you optimize the technology and you know, including the skin suit, the helmet, the bike, relative to the person. So, you know, of course, um, you know, the, the human, like I said, is 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 kind of the, the thing that brings you home the medal. But I would say the technology is about forty percent of the of the performance. Interesting. I didn't. Yeah, I hadn't realised that it was that bigger percentage from everything from the tyres, the chains, the wheels, everything. Like it, you would be shocked how much well i was when i first found out anyway how much that that influences the the aerodynamic drag which obviously is one half the equation of, of propulsion um and then therefore you have to invest in that as well and and yeah doing that means you because we're such a small team not very much money with partners and sponsors um yeah from startups like us or startup size anyway is there without giving away trade secrets how are you managing to get these kind of world-class and and gold medal winning performances with with maybe less resources than some of the bigger teams so to to put it in context um uh, this is for the listeners so british cycling i think at 28 or 30 million over four years i think we get five so if you stack up you know the, and I think we're ranked like seventh in in funding or eighth in the world for cycling. So a lot of countries have their own in-house specialists, engineers, almost an army of people. The way we do it is, in short, collaborations and partnerships with smaller firms. Let's take aerodynamic drag quantification for example. It's called CDA, so coefficient of drag uh, frontal area. And to quantify that, usually is in the wind tunnel. Now, the wind tunnel costs a thousand euros an hour. Um, and if you want to, it takes about a day or two for, to, to really get any sort of meaningful data for a rider. Obviously, we can't really afford that because that's 16 grand, let's just say, if it's an eight hour day. So we have to be sort of creative in, in what we do. So we approach partners and even people on internet chat sites and forums to say, look, you know, how can we do this? We've got a problem. We're almost, uh, outsourcing it, um, but but without actually paying the consultancy fee. So we'll just say, look, if you want to develop a product yourself, um, you can do. We'll validate it and and test it, and you can have the data to to move on from it. However, you know we need it moving forward, and it'll be a, you know our product to use, and we can endorse it or anything like that. So it's a mutual relationship where we go out to people saying, hey, look, we. we this is what we're looking to do. This is how we think we, we can do it. Can anyone help? And usually they're kind of small firms who sort of pipe up and go, yeah, or, or scientific chat rooms uh, or forums who help us out and, yeah, and just take it through that way. That's so interesting in terms of, um, in, in terms of a, you know, kind of a really flexible way of working. You mentioned earlier that obviously you're dealing with a very kind of small pool of talent. There isn't an endless supply of elite cyclists. How important then is is culture as part of the team? How do you sort of build that build that culture and use that to drive performance? Cultures are accepted behaviours. You have to stamp out toxic behaviours, and what I mean by that is, you know, people or riders who are like you know uh, moaning or complaining, saying you know, I'm not. This is not fair. This is not fair. Whatever. Um, you have to stop that. And the way you do that is with clarity 
and transparency. And what I mean by that is you have to, so for us, for us, the big thing, the thing that causes the most friction is selection and selection policies. So you have to really set from the outset, okay, this is how we're going to select. This is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to do it. Does anyone have a problem? And then once that's agreed, it's mainly about planning, uh, again, with the same principles of communicating and, and being transparent and open um, of how each rider is going to be the best version of themselves for when they need to be, but also sort of empowering them, if, if one, uh, one of a better phrase, to bring them on the journey with you. So, you know, usually what happens is I go with a, a training plan um, or phase plan, call it an overview. And this is how I think we, we're going to do it. And then for the first two or three months, this is the, these are the details of the day-to-day sessions of how we're going to do it. You know, what do you think? And it starts with a conversation where they get to decide and, and choose how they want to be the best version of themselves and, uh, and, and, and get the most out of themselves in that training phase. And the reason why we do that is just so at the end, you know, they have accountability and responsibility for their own performance. They can't just say, it was, you know, you told me to do this, so I did it blindly. And that's not us shirking responsibility. It's just making sure that you know, they have a say and they believe in what they do. And if you do that, I believe that it sort of improves the culture um, of sort of accepted behaviours. The people are acting more, you know, not responsible, but they they believe in what they do. They know the rules of the game, if you want to call it that. And they just set about doing it. So, final question: What's next? What does the what does the future look like for your sport? Do you think are we going to see more technology, more innovation? What do you think is on the horizon? We're going to see much more technology. I think um, these past sort of three or four years, the the cat was out the bag about technology and access to technology. So, I think that's kind of petering out. I think what we're going to see is more people participating and every year track cycling is improving its numbers of, of participation particularly at the elite end so i think we're just going to get more and more better and more unique athletes and a higher standard which i think is really exciting for the sport and uh yeah i'm just looking forward to it because i think uh, the times are getting quicker and i'm just looking forward to seeing more sort of um a broader range of athletes so we have people from trinidad and tobago Sudan, uh, Thailand, who are all kind of at, at the top end. And I'm just looking forward to more and more nations participating and having some more and more competition. Mehdi, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. My thanks to Mehdi. You can subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or via your podcasting app of choice. Please also follow the show on Instagram. You can find us by searching for Recruiting Future. You can search all the past episodes at recruitingfuture.com. On that site, you can also subscribe to the mailing list to get the inside track about everything that's coming up on the show. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back next time and I hope you'll join me. This is my show.
Have you ever found yourself scrolling through financial news and wondering, how does any of this affect me? How can I read a major headline and truly understand what impact that has on not only my portfolio, but my life? Well, our goal on the podcast Inside the Street, hosted by Wall Street analyst Celeste Schifre Partners, is to provide public investors and young professionals with a deeper understanding of the mechanics that drive those major headlines. And what better way to dive into these mechanics and hosting Wall Street analysts themselves to discuss the newest trends in finance firsthand? Well, on our show, we bring you real perspectives from the front line. Hearing these analysts give commentary has made our listeners much more well-versed on the financial markets. This approach to discussion allows our listeners to engage in conversation with much more educated opinions and predictions. So be sure to check out our show, Inside the Street, wherever you find your podcasts.